You're listening to The Good Dirt with Byron Smith, a weekly podcast digesting the news, taking the dirty, smelly, unwanted bits of what's happening in our world and giving them some time, some air, some mixing, in short, some composting to see if they might turn into fresh soil from which new life might spring. Welcome to episode two. Thanks to all those who've given feedback after the first episode. Please keep it coming. If you want to stay in touch with the latest developments, discuss these stories further, make suggestions or offer feedback, then sign up for The Good Dirt page on Facebook. We're pleased to announce that The Good Dirt is now available on iTunes and a number of other podcasting platforms. If you can't find it on your preferred site, please let us know and we'll see what we can do about it. If you do use iTunes or the iPhone's podcast app, please subscribe, rate, comment and so on as it really helps others find us. This conversation with Brooke Prentice was recorded a couple of months ago. But I think apart from one or two passing references, it's largely still relevant and certainly the major issues are still around. And this week, we're going to be thinking about the big idea of just world belief uh, and how that affects so many of the stories that we hear on the news. And then we're going to be diving into some specific stories. First, about Indigenous incarceration and ongoing inquests that are happening at the moment and some protests around a new women's prison. Then thinking about Australia's relationship with some of our Pacific neighbours, both through the lens of our offshore detention centres, but also in our climate policy. We'll also be looking at a new study uh, at the effect of uh, rising CO2 levels on staple crops, and then finally thinking about the honey on our table. And I'm here tonight with Brooke Prentice, Waka Waka woman, Aboriginal Christian leader, Aboriginal spokesperson for Common Grace, and coordinator of the Grass Tree Gathering. Brooke, it's so good to have you on the show. Will you provide an acknowledgement of the land that we're recording on now? Yeah, thanks so much, Byron, for having me. And it would be a privilege to bring an acknowledgement of country. So as we sit here in a studio, we acknowledge that we are recording on the land of the Gadigal people and that they have been caretakers of this land, the Gadigal peoples of the Aurora Nation, for thousands of years. Science tells us that's over 65,000 years and we pay our respects to our elders past, present and future. And when we pay our respects to those elders, I particularly thank the elders who I know and have played an important role in my life. Uh, Aboriginal leaders who have fought for equality, justice and freedom and who continue to fight for equality, justice and freedom. Thank you, Brooke. And for listeners, wherever you are at, at the moment, in your bed, in your car, at work, washing up, you might like to take a moment and bring to mind the land that you are listening on. So, Brooke, in addition to what I said earlier... Um, of some of your sort of formal titles. How would you describe yourself in 15 words or less? Oh, that's a hard one. I think it's probably um, strong uh, but soft. Yeah, straight to the point. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. That's, that's, that's accurate from what I know of you. That's great. Well, tonight we are going to dive into three segments, our usual three segments. The first segment is, what's the big idea? The second one is, what's going on? And the third one is, what do we do? 
So our first segment is really trying to pick a concept that's going to help us understand the news, that's going to help us draw connections, uh, go deeper, understand some of the backstory. And so sometimes this could be something from political philosophy, sometimes from theology, sometimes it could be an idea out of science or from history. But tonight I'm picking one from psychology, and it's a phrase called just world belief or belief in a just world. It's, a, it's an idea that has been much studied in psychology in recent decades, but it really began as a concept to be studied in psychology back in the 1960s with a social psychologist named Melvin Lerner, who noticed something about his colleagues. The therapists at his hospital, nice and sympathetic people, seemed to be uh, acting quite cruelly at times towards some of their mentally ill patients, pushing and prodding them. And he wondered, why were these professionals treating patients as if they somehow deserved their illness. And so Lerner began a series of unusual experiments. And the, the most famous one was that he had his subjects observe a woman undergoing a series of tests. Now, the woman was ostensibly a fellow test subject, but was actually an actor playing a role. And whenever this uh, actor got a question wrong in, in the test that she was apparently taking, she was given a small jolt of electricity, or so it seemed. And so as Lerner's subjects uh, watched the jolts became more and more severe and she became in greater and greater pain and it became more and more obvious that she was really being uh, abused or tortured. Understandably, the subjects were distressed and when they had the option of changing the experiment, the vast majority chose to end the electric shocks, as anyone would. However, the interesting thing was when they weren't given that option, Lerner witnessed something quite disturbing. As the participants continued to watch, unable to alter the victim's fate, they began to blame the woman. This was really interesting. When they were unable to change an apparent injustice, they started blaming the victim. And the more that Lerner dug into this phenomenon, he discovered it was related to a deep belief that many but not all people hold in the world as a fundamentally just place, a place where more or less most of the time the good prosper and the wicked suffer. And so this assumption is shared widely in society, and it's particularly found amongst those who are more politically conservative, that we get what we deserve, or if you like, the, the popular notion of karma. And for people who hold this belief, when they're confronted by an apparent injustice, then there's cognitive dissonance between their belief in a just world, on the one hand, and this apparent injustice that they can't do anything about, on the other hand. And given that dissonance, that, that conflict between those two ideas, uh, for some people, they resolve that by changing their opinion of the injustice and turning it into something that is not actually unjust. And so they begin to blame the victim. They try to find reasons why this situation is actually deserved. And so you can see this across multiple different issues. If you're poor, then you probably should have been working harder. If you got shot by police, or if you got arrested and locked up, you probably did something to provoke it. If you uh, were the victim of sexual assault, then maybe it was what you were wearing, or what you had drunk, or where you were. And so this pattern of seeking to maintain their deep belief in a fundamentally just world leads them to have a strong bias. This is a tendency in many of us, leads us to have a strong bias to reinterpret interpret situations of apparent injustice in ways that end up blaming the victim. So, Brooke, is that a pattern that seems familiar to you or, or a useful concept for you as you approach the news? Oh, absolutely. And I guess the news that I'm specifically thinking about is 
um, the news of Aboriginal people's lives uh, in Australia. You know, I was once at a conference where this exact uh, scientific experiment was uh, referenced and I said to the presenter, I said, you know, it's very much what Aboriginal people feel today in Australia that we're actually that experiment where the pain is turned up to maximum. It's nearly like we can't take any more and I think that's what we'll go through as we have a look at some of these news um, stories that we're going to discuss. And, and, and Australia keeps seemingly to turn up that pain on us. Uh, you know, it's a pain that's been lasting over 230 years of colonial rule in this country and that includes in the present day. You know, when we look at things, concepts like closing the gap and the lack of closing the gap, um, you know, 10 years of failure of something that was supposed to help our lives and, uh, you know, there hasn't been enough attention placed on it. But, you know, also in these stories, uh, you know, we often share a very different perspective as Aboriginal peoples because we face a different world here in Australia. What happens is that non-Aboriginal people can often come up to me and say, oh, I don't believe you, that can't be true. But it's my truth, it's my world, and it's actually an Australian world that people just can't see. Yeah. Uh, and so they focus on this just world concept and that this must be all right and all good, but as Aboriginal people, as we walk this land that we have for thousands of years and over 2,000 generations of our people have... Um, we feel the pain and the hurt and the sadness um, and the injustice. Yeah, and I believe you were just this afternoon part of a conversation that was exploring some of the myths and preconceived notions around Aboriginal people that perhaps are functioning as, as some of the ways of maintaining belief in a just world and resolving this cognitive dissonance. And uh, do you want to briefly just mention one or two of those that you maybe discussed yeah. this afternoon? Yeah, that's right. Or say something about the conversation this afternoon? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we looked at many of the myths and stereotypes that exist. I mean, it just fascinates me that people can come up to me and they say, um, you know, all you Aboriginal people are, are drunks and drug addicts. And so when people say all you Aboriginal people, that includes me. And I'm not an alcoholic and I'm not a drug addict. And there are many non-Aboriginal people that are alcoholics and drug addicts as well. And so, you know, it's, it's a tough world that we have to continually fight for our identity, um, to fight against generalizations, um, and really to fight racism in mm. this land. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the things we talk about the justice system, and a lot of people would think that uh, police are there to help anyone that needs help, and mm -hmm. especially people who ask for it. And one of my personal stories is I was in um, Adelaide and part of uh, Jan 26 silent non-violent protest of Aboriginal people. And there was one non-Aboriginal lady who came into our group and started yelling racist abuse to our children. Um, mm. These were five, six, seven-year-olds. And because, you know, you have 20 Aboriginal people gathered uh, and that means that you need at least 10 police, if not more. And in this instance, there were 10 police for the 20 Aboriginal people. And so I went straight up to them um, because the lady was shaking and I was like, she's going to hit someone. Uh, and I went up to the police and I said, um, excuse me, can you please uh, remove this lady? She's being racist and abusing us and I'm worried the situation will get out of hand. Can you please remove her? Um, she's not part of our group. And they just all stood there in silence and looked at me, these 10 police officers. 
And so I'm like, what's happening here? Why aren't they talking to me? Why aren't they doing something? Like, this is an urgent situation. They could see what was playing out. Mm. Uh, and I said, excuse me, can you please, please help me? I, I need help. You need to remove this lady. And then they started to look at each other to kind of see who was going to move first. And then I had to ask a third time. And it was on the third time that I said, you need to do something. You need to do it now before this gets out of hand. We need help. Please help us. Um, and then finally, one police officer uh, just asked the lady to come with them. Like if it had been a reverse situation, I probably would have been placed on the floor, handcuffed and carted off. Yeah. Uh, and this is where, you know, the... You see that double standard Absolutely. firsthand. Absolutely. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And you can see the, the prejudiced assumptions at work. And uh, it's, it's really helped me to notice that in action and to, to start to understand some of the deep psychological reasons for it, to think about uh, that the people who are operating that way very frequently are protecting a self-image and an understanding of the world that is precious to them, of the world as a mm. fundamentally just place. And, you know, you get Christian versions of that, and we could have yeah. a whole yeah. discussion yeah. Uh, about that. We might leave that to the side just for now. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, uh, I could uh, also share some of my own stories of witnessing, as a non-Aboriginal person, the, the, the double standards that mm. police have applied. Mm. Um, I'll briefly tell one story that uh, also was uh, to do with a January 26th event uh, a mm. couple of years ago, a rally I was at in the middle of Sydney. And I've, I've been to quite a few rallies, and uh, this one was... Uh, the tone from the police right from the outset was completely different, much more hostile. There were uh, a whole string of heavily um, armoured riot police uh, and, and police on horses visibly present from the start and, and in the face, uh, very close to the march. And then partway through the march, completely unprovoked, a sudden charge from a whole line of perhaps 30 riot police straight into a thick crowd of people, including women and children. Mm. And, and that charge resulted in three people going to hospital, yeah. uh, one of them with long-term brain damage, a string of court cases... But none of them over what was happening prior to the charge. Mm. Um, all of them were the result of the charge and of the chaos and confusion generated by having 30 heavily armed yep. riot police charge into a crowd of people. Yep. Further stories I could tell about being involved in one of the court cases afterwards, and mm. I, I won't go into that now, but maybe that's a story for another day. Mm. So just world belief. Uh, we might see if that thread gets picked up as we head into some of these stories. Before we do, brief interlude... What's a pet peeve? This is our uh, one of our semi-regular segments. I want to hear, what's one thing about the news media that bugs you, that peeves you? One detail they keep getting wrong or a practice they frequently do that distorts things, something that gets forgotten. What is it for you that you just go, oh, if only journalists would... Tell the truth? <laughs> <laughs> just that minor detail. <laughs> That's right. And it was actually at the Gen 26 protests and I actually got interviewed by one of the major news channels and I was so excited and spoke this beautiful thing. And just like you said about being a non-Aboriginal person, many of our non-Aboriginal friends are joining us in that and mm. marking Gen 26's day of mourning, um, survival day, not just invasion day, but mm. that as well. And so I was saying, you know, that this is about non-Aboriginal people coming and joining us in friendship and, you know, this is what this is all about. And it was a beautiful interview and then a couple of my friends were watching me and after they cut the interview and they're like, 
yeah, they're never going to show that. And I'm like, why? But it was so good. Like, I gave them such quality stuff. And, of course, they didn't. They show the five-second snippet of um, some Aboriginal people swearing and, you know, shouting out Invasion Day. And they have every right to call it Invasion Day. But it was just like, oh, really? Let's just tell the truth about this situation. It's not just Aboriginal people marching in this rally. Um, it's many of our non-Aboriginal friends are coming and joining us. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. And it, it, Similar experience at the rally that I was mentioning. The news coverage of that didn't focus on any of the very salient points that were made, didn't focus on the large size of the crowd and the, no. the shared experience, but just on that moment of chaos and violence instigated unnecessarily uh, by the right police. So let's head into now our second segment. What's going on? So this is a segment where we dive into five or six news stories in a little bit of depth and try and draw some connections between them, talk about how these things affect our lives, and we're aiming for stories that go beyond the daily froth and bubble of gaffes and stunts and personality politics. We want to talk about stories that illustrate broader trends uh, or that show a turning point, um, and particularly we want to focus on stories that might not have made it to the front page uh, of your local newspaper. So, Brooke, do you want to share uh, your first story with us? Yeah, so it was actually uh, the extensive work that The Guardian has done uh, called Deaths Inside, where they looked at the last 10 years of Aboriginal deaths in custody and reviewed 146 cases of Aboriginal peoples that had died in custody. And the reason that this work is so important that they've done is we had a Royal Commission in 1991 that produced 339 recommendations, uh, reviewed 99 Aboriginal deaths in custody between the 80s to 1991. But it's so hard to find any information since then. Uh, and we know, personally, as the Aboriginal community, of our people dying in custody without having to wait long many years for coronial inquests and no one being charged. All of these things are what we face. And so what they released, because The Guardian got quite frustrated about not being able to find this information as well. And I did my own research about six months ago and looked at the last 18 months and had to trawl through regional newspapers mainly, mm. uh, where I knew that these cases had happened and found, I think, eight reported Aboriginal deaths in custody in the same period. I think The Guardian found about 20 but what they've uncovered, which we've always known, but being able to now tell Australia is about each of these people's stories, their long wait for justice, the recommendations that have come out of each of their coronial inquests that haven't been implemented. You know, we're still waiting for the 339 recommendations to be implemented. And yeah, how many of them have been implemented so far? Oh, a handful. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realise that Recommendation 339, that's where the reconciliation movement in this country came out of, um, that Recommendation 339 was to set up a process of reconciliation in Australia. Right. And so, you know, the 1990s were the decade of reconciliation, but Aboriginal people, it's a, not a great word for us. It's a conflicting word, and we also talk about conciliation. That's probably another episode, but... You know, as I've shared in churches all around Australia, and I've shared some of these stories, going back to Mr. Ward in 2008 in WA, an Aboriginal elder who was cooked to death 
in over 40 degree heat, Mm -hmm. um, traveling uh, many hundreds of kilometers, cooked to death. He suffered third degree burns. This is in the back of a police vehicle. In the back of a police vehicle. That's right, because it was all metal um, and they gave him no water, let alone a toilet break, but drove um, over 300 kilometers. And then we look at, you know, today's Aboriginal deaths in custody. We've just had David Dungai Jr., and his coronial inquest began after three years and then was immediately postponed. And, you know, he died in custody uh, after corrections officers were called on him for eating biscuits. These mm. are Arnott's biscuits. And he told those officers 12 times he couldn't breathe and they didn't believe him. And he died. Yeah. And, you know, I think as we think about this concept of the just world, it's the fact if a non-Aboriginal person was to say, I can't breathe they'll probably immediately be believed. But Mm. in this man's case, 12 times, and they still didn't believe him. And you look at Mr. Ward. Of course, you know, if you're going to drive someone in a metal container Mm. over 300 kilometres, so that's what, a three-hour drive at least, in over 40-degree heat, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. You know? That's right. And this is something I really appreciate about the the Guardian reporting on these stories, is that they've got the combination of both the detailed granular stories that when you're confronted by them, you cannot but call them grave injustices. Mm. You Mm. can't look at the details of those stories and blame these victims. Not easily. Mm. I mean, Mm. obviously, for people who are really set in that mindset, they'll find something to latch onto. But Mm. the, the details of those stories just scream out injustice. So on the one hand, you're really getting right down to the personal stories. But on the other hand... They've collected so many of them that mm. you see this isn't just an isolated no, incident. It's right. not a few bad apples. Right. It's not, well, accidents happen, yep. uh, things get overlooked. Yep. There's a consistent pattern of double standards and mistreatment yep. and, right. and abuse here uh, identified back in the Royal Commission, mm-hmm. um, known right. by Aboriginal communities for far longer than that. But yep. this, this isn't something new no. uh, and it isn't something made up. It's yep. not just sour grapes. Um, and so this, this reporting by The Guardian under the heading of Deaths Inside, there's been a whole string of articles That's on The Guardian right. site that you can go and uh, have a look at. But they've also got a full database of over uh, 400 personal stories of, of people who have died in custody. Um, and, you know, it affects every state and territory. And so you can drill into the database mm-hmm. um, and look at whether you want to look at a particular year, a particular person's story, or look at a particular state. Uh, and, you know, those statistics. And that's what I've always said, you know, whether it's closing the gap or Aboriginal deaths in custody, these statistics are real people's lives. For us, they're faces and names. They're our aunties, our uncles, our brothers, our sisters, our cousin brothers, our cousin sisters, our nieces, our nephews. Mm. You know, I've called Australia to to wake up and to stay awake. Mm. Uh, and this is another one of those wake-up moments, but not to fall back to sleep like what happened after the 1991 Royal Commission. As Aboriginal peoples, we didn't fall asleep, but to stay awake because, yeah. you know, yeah. we've got to do something about this. And we can, you know, yeah. the recommendations are there. And, you know, when we talk about the truth-telling as well, the other thing I appreciated about the Guardian's work on Deaths Inside uh, was they looked at the coronial inquests. So they're not making up these stories. They've gone to the actual source documents, and you can actually click on the coronial inquest and read it for yourself as well. And I believe there's one, uh, there's an inquest happening right now. Mm. Um, Do you want to say briefly a little bit about that one to give another sort of case study? 
Yeah, so I think that leads into our next news article yep. as well, which is uh, it's Wayne Feller Morrison's case in South Australia. Uh, and the article we're particularly looking at is at the beginning of his inquest last week. And it's the Yatla prison inquest guards refused to cooperate over Wayne Morrison's death. And this one's actually really personal for me. And I guess that was, you know, one of the things that happens. You can look at these um, statistics and I've been fighting for justice for Aboriginal deaths in custody for a long time. But when it really becomes personal and my friend is uh, Wayne Feller Morrison's sister and to see the grief mm. that she has to go through as she sits in that coronial inquest. But this new story in particular, and one of the things I just shake my head at and can't understand how justice works in this country, or you can if you look at it from an Aboriginal perspective, that justice doesn't work in this country. And that's that there's three minutes of missing CCTV footage when Wayne was placed in the prison van to be transported, mm. and there were eight corrections officers seven of them who witnessed his death have refused to give a police statement. Now, this coronial inquest is uh, two years since his death. So the family have waited two years, but those corrections officers who witnessed his death are not required to provide a police statement. I just can't work that out in my head. That's just... You know, how, how is that allowed? If you witness someone's death, surely you're required to give a, a police statement. You're yeah. a witness to a person's death. Yeah, and not just a witness. If you're a member of the enforcement arm of the state, That's um, right. entrusted with legal coercive powers far beyond the average citizen, then surely there's far more expected of you than an average citizen. Exactly. That's right. And, you know, that's one of the things I've often wrestled with. You know, since I was 11 years old, that was the 1991 Royal Commission. As an 11-year-old, I was conscious of that news. And I thought it meant a, an end to our people dying in custody. How does it happen in a in a jail where there should be CCTV footage everywhere? People expect those people to behave... Well, I expected them to behave at a certain level. But then you're like, you look back at all of those cases where no one has ever been charged. Yeah. And, you know, we often say in our rallies and marches, they say justice, we say murder. Yeah. And, you know, that's part of the reality but you can't talk like that because you get shouted down in australia as well and uh that's part of that just world belief that's, that's right. very threatening to think yep. that yep. those who are entrusted with pursuing and enacting justice on the front lines yep. might be some of the ones most responsible for committing injustice yeah and yep. that's that's a very confronting thought to to someone who holds precious an mm. idea of a, a world that is well ordered yeah yeah now this is some heavy stuff and serious, important stuff. Let's let's take a brief break, and this is uh, a little interlude we're calling Brooke's Random Fact. Brooke, give us a random fact. Yes, well, I'm people that know me know I'm quite the trivia buff, and I love running trivia nights and being quiz master. And so, uh, one of my random facts, I'm actually going to ask it to you, Byron, as a question. All right. Uh, which is one of the things I'm obsessed with are the big things around Australia. And Australia has many big things. Most people might know. Big banana or the... The big banana. Yeah. And where's the big banana? Uh, the Gold Coast? Sunshine Coast. Gold Coast. No, no. no. See, you wouldn't do very well on my trivia night. Your idea. Uh, So it's Coffs Harbour. Coffs Harbour. Oh, of course. But this isn't the one I want to ask you. The one I want to ask you is, where is the big penguin? (laughs) The big penguin. Uh, Well, I've got to guess it's somewhere south. 
Um, I'm going to say uh, Mornington Peninsula of Victoria. Incorrect. The correct answer is the town of Penguin in Tasmania. <laughs> of course it is. Yes. <laughs> All right, Which I'm yet up... to visit. I've visited many of them, but I await the day I get to see Penguin, the big penguin in Penguin, Tasmania. All right. My sister recently moved down to Tasmania, so I'll put that on my itinerary next time I go to visit. Absolutely. All right. That's excellent. Would you like to take us into our third story? Yeah. So the third story, I found this fascinating as we're looking at deaths in custody and then uh, Wayne Fellow Morrison's coronial inquest. And it's a story from Queensland, which is uh, the state that I actually live in. And it's the No Gatton Women's Prison story. So uh, I actually wasn't aware of what had been happening. They've been transporting female prisoners to Gatton for the last three weeks. But this so week... So where's Gatton? Oh, Gatton is west of Brisbane, about uh, an hour and a half, two hour drive mm-hmm. uh, west of Brisbane. So... Yeah, it's not a major city. It's a regional rural town yep. and there's no public transport out there and it's very difficult to get to unless you have a car. And even then, you know, like an hour and a half to two hour drive. So and there's a new prison out there. There's a new prison out there. Uh, it's actually been out there for a little while, but it hasn't been functional. Right. Uh, but this week they started transporting, well, the last three weeks they've started transporting female prisoners in particular to this Gatton's prison and it's now going to be a women's prison. But what happened in the last couple of days is four people did chain themselves and put themselves on the road to prevent the transportation of the female prisoners for activists. So a piece of non-violent direct action blockading the road. That's right. Yeah. And like, I'm grateful for them because I had no idea that this was happening and the news somehow covered it and uh, got those activists to, to tell their story. And two of those activists were Aboriginal women uh, and then two non-Aboriginal women. So why, what, what, what's their beef with, with uh, this new uh, correctional facility? Well, one of the activists actually said, which I thought was um, quite fascinating, you know, we talk about over-representation of Aboriginal people in prison and prison incarceration, the rates. Uh, and she actually called for the Queensland government, not for incarceration, but decarceration. And so, you know, we need to look at other ways of, you know, this decarceration concept, which, you know... Taking people out of prison, decarceration. Correct. Like investing in communities, investing in appropriate housing and looking at mental illness. You know, people are getting locked up for mental illness because there's nowhere else to put them. And that's just crazy. And that happens hugely for Aboriginal people. You know, you even look back at Wayne Fellow Morrison's case and he was only in that jail for six days, his very first time in prison. And it's well documented how his mental health was deteriorating. He should have been straight to the hospital, not kept in a prison facility. And then when it comes to our women, and this was something else that The Guardian found out about how many of these people, Aboriginal um, prisoners, are actually on remand meaning they're actually yet to be sentenced. They haven't even been sentenced yet. And it's estimated that 40% of women in the Brisbane Women's Correctional Centre are on remand, so they haven't yet been sentenced. Why are we investing in these prisons? And it's estimated that for one female prisoner or one prisoner, it's between $107,000 per year, but I've heard it's up to $180,000 per year for one women's prisoner. Imagine if we were spending that money on housing and accommodation for these women. And the other tragic thing for me about going to Gatton is that 
the impact on their families. Like, how are they going to get to Gaddon um, when there's no public transport? And so the breaking up, continued breaking up of families. And when we think about Australia's past and the stolen generations, our women are immensely important. And so today we talk about the new stolen generation. And just in this one instance with this women's prison in Gatton, you're further leading to the breakdown of families. We need to be building a better future for Aboriginal peoples and all peoples. And this isn't the way to do it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that seems like a good point to expand this conversation about locking people up unnecessarily at great expense uh, when there are other options available and uh, a topic that has been in the news recently uh, again, um, rightly so, has been Australia's policy of offshore detention and particularly the plight of the children and families on Nauru, uh, that uh, remote Pacific island where Australia has kept for the last five years hundreds of um, people seeking asylum and people who found to be refugees in conditions that have been widely described by independent observers as abusive, inhumane and cruel. And the island of Nauru has, in a sense, been used by Australia as a, a way of hiding what we're doing. Mm. Uh, if you like, we're turning the CCTV cameras off, yeah. um, not just for three minutes, but for five years. Yeah. So Nauru has prevented journalists from accessing the island for most of that time. The Australian government has stonewalled and often obfuscated or dissembled, uh, that is lied, about some of the things that have gone on. And the situation there has got so desperate that many of those children, their mental health has really deteriorated. Many are suicidal, um, many are in urgent need of medical treatment. But something else has been happening in Nauru at the moment, which is for our next story, which is that there is a uh, Pacific Islands Forum being hosted on Nauru. So for 16 Pacific Island nations, including Australia, there's a bit of a gathering and uh, a government-to-government discussions happening um, and this has brought a spotlight on Nauru in the, the regional media and, and uh, has, has highlighted some of the conditions that the, the refugees are in. But there's another story that I wanted to sort of pivot to at this point, and it's a story that just came out in The Guardian, uh, written by Kate Lyons and Ben Doherty. And the headline is, Australia, a relationship with Pacific on climate change, dysfunctional and abusive. At this gathering, one of the things on the agenda uh, has been talking about the, the regional climate change response for Pacific Island nations, many of whom are amongst the most vulnerable in the world, many of them low-lying islands, uh, extremely vulnerable to sea level rise. Uh, some of these nations already suffering very serious impacts on their infrastructure and the well-being of their peoples. And uh, there was a quote from Palau's climate change coordinator, so a member of the Palau government working on climate change, and he points out that there's a, Australia has this strange double relationship to the Pacific Islands when it comes to climate change. On the one hand, Australia provides a whole lot of aid to the region. It's one of the, the major providers of foreign aid. I mean, we've been cutting our aid overall, but a lot of that's been... The, the, the cuts have largely happened elsewhere than the Pacific region. But on the other hand, as well as giving aid, we are often the spoiler the foot dragger, the, the, the recalcitrant when it comes to climate negotiations at an international level. We are the ones who are trying to water down agreements. Uh, Australia is at the back of the pack when it comes to this. And, and so Palau's climate change coordinator uh, compared Australia, quite shockingly, but aptly, to an abusive husband who, on the one hand, provides for the family, but on the other hand, is causing 
further damage long term. And this isn't just an isolated individual with this critique. This is a critique of Australia shared by many of our Pacific neighbours, uh, that we really are a bit of a, a bully of a big brother to uh, many of these much smaller and more vulnerable people. Now, do you have any reflections at this point, uh, any parallels between the relationship of the Australian government to Pacific Islands uh, or to, to people seeking asylum on Nauru mm. um, and uh, Aboriginal people in this land? Yeah, I mean, as Aboriginal peoples, and not that I can speak on behalf of all of my peoples, but the Aboriginal people that I know and have uh, had conversation about this is our heart breaks for our asylum seeker and refugee brothers and sisters because we actually understand the context. You know, uh, the way Aboriginal peoples, you know, were removed off their land but placed in chains and bound up and some of the first prisons in Australia were built to house Aboriginal people, not the convicts. They were built for Aboriginal people and to remove us off our land. So that incarceration goes back to the time of the colonial invasion. And also when we look at today and our prison incarceration, our onshore detention centres, and when we particularly look at our young people and the juvenile detention rates where an Aboriginal young person is 24 times more likely to be in juvenile detention than a non-Aboriginal person, we can very much understand and feel for our asylum seeker and refugee brothers and sisters. And you know, obviously the concept of um, an abusive partner, we've known that for 230 years, but whether it's actually a partner or in our case, it was an abusive guest, I guess is one of the mm. questions that we could think about. And I think Australia's treatment or this current government's treatment or the parliament's treatment of asylum seeker and refugees, we have to go back to the true history of Australia and what happened to Aboriginal peoples, because I think that this treatment is coming out of a sense of fear because we are the original custodians of this land and if it was in our power we would be saying we welcome you to our shores that we've looked after for 65,000 years but we don't have that power in Australia today but we do tell many of them that we get to mix within Australian society that they are welcome here. I guess it's another example of that we wish the Australian Parliament would sit down with Aboriginal peoples and listen to us because you know, it's not just about Aboriginal people's lives, it's all lives and how we treat each other as humans. And, you know, when you think about these uh, Pacific nations that are gathered, and including Australia, we are losing parts of the Torres Strait Islands mm. to rising sea levels. Yes. That's part of Australia and yes. other areas of Northern Australia. And so, you know, there's so much that we need to partner on, but you, you can't do that if there's an abusive spouse, an abusive partner who's playing out this power and pretending to be your friend and then not your friend, you know? So, yeah, I thought it was a great article. Yeah. And we're really, um, just stepping back for a moment here, we're, we're, we've got many balls in the air, if you like. We've, mm. we've raised um, three broad issues that, that are divisive in society and that are about grave, ongoing injustices that go beyond just, you know, the wrongdoing of this or that individual. Mm. We've been talking about the treatment of Aboriginal people in uh, this land. We've been talking about Australia's treatment of uh, those who come to us in desperate need, uh, seeking refuge and safety. And we've been talking about the long-term global issue of uh, climate change and, and the urgent need to preserve the habitability of the mm. planet. And these issues really are linked in Absolutely. all kinds of ways, as yeah. we've, we've been noting uh, and, you know, even some of the people who have fled to us have been displaced by conflicts that have been exacerbated by mm. climate change. Yep. 
Uh, there are all kinds of links here, but one of the links that we're really noticing tonight is that all three of these, as divisive social issues, really centre around this question of just world belief. Mm. Of course, these are three of... They're not the only injustices in the world, but these are three of the most obvious to 21st century Australians. Mm. Uh, three of the places where our government is very much on the side of the bully, at least as much as, as, as on the side of trying to fix the problem. Um, and so places that really challenge the idea that we live in a just, a fundamentally just world where the, the good prosper and the wicked are punished. Um, because in each of these situations, it seems that those who are suffering, we're not saying they're pure and uh, innocent as the driven snow, but they don't deserve the suffering that they're experiencing. Um, I think that's, that's pretty fair to say. That's a threatening thought, and it's worth just really acknowledging that, that for many of us, it's a threatening idea to acknowledge that the world is deeply, deeply broken. Mm. But I think it's something that as a Christian, I think it's actually crucial to my faith to acknowledge. That's right. That unless there is an acknowledgement of the bad news of a broken world desperately in need of the love of a creator, then the good news of Jesus actually makes little sense. Mm. It's only if there's some deep brokenness and injustice that needs addressed that, uh, you know, that, that, that a narrative of God doing something about it is necessary. If, if the world is already a just place, then all that's needed is some extra knowledge, some revelation, a bit of insight to understand mm. that, well, God's in control, it's all okay. You know, don't stress out about these other issues. Don't get distracted by them. Uh, but actually, if these are the ways that the brokenness of the world is manifest in our life today, then these may be the places where God is calling us to be salt and light mm. and to seek healing and new new growth good good soil uh good dirt talking about dirt and uh talking about injustice mm. and climate change a fifth story rising carbon dioxide levels could push hundreds of millions into malnutrition by 2050 now this is a story uh from the website carbon brief who are summarizing a new publication in the uh, respected scientific journal nature climate change the title of that um Journal article is Impact of Anthropogenic Carbon Dioxide Emissions on Global Human Nutrition. Now, this is a fairly familiar concept to those who pay attention to the threats from climate change. The idea that a warmer world with disrupted precipitation patterns, disrupted water cycle, it's harder to grow crops. A lot of our staple crops don't do well in heat waves um, or in droughts or in floods. It hardly needs to be said with uh, so much of New South Wales in severe drought at the moment. But this study is pointing out something a little different. It's not simply that the crops struggle with hotter weather or with less or more water, but that higher carbon dioxide levels themselves affect the nutritional value of the crops. And so quoting from the article, the increased presence of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere could cause staple crops to produce smaller amounts of nutrients, such as zinc, iron, and protein, the researchers say. Using international data sets of food consumption, the study estimates that these changes could cause an additional 175 million people to be zinc deficient and an additional 122 million people to be protein deficient by 2050. The findings show that malnutrition is most likely to affect parts of the world already grappling with food insecurity, such as India, North Africa, the Middle East. And so this is one of those impacts from climate change that uh, I think there are two important things to say about it. One is 
This is a direct contradiction of one of the talking points uh, often pushed by those who want to ridicule uh, the need to do anything about climate change. It often gets pushed by some of the think tanks that are funded by fossil fuels and uh, who want to distract us from the problem or delay doing anything about it. They say, carbon dioxide is plant food. It makes plants grow better. If we increase the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, then crops will actually grow better. Now, there's a slight truth to that in that under the right conditions, more carbon dioxide will make plants more productive. As we've already noted, if the, if the conditions are also getting hotter and either wetter or drier, then often that's more important than elevated carbon dioxide. But even where elevated carbon dioxide might have some kind of fertilising effect, the crops that grow are of less nutritional value. And so this isn't sort of a really obvious in-your-face impact from climate change like stronger storms or islands being flooded. Uh, this is one of those things that just appears in broad data sets. One of those things that might not get noticed at the local level because it happens gradually and incrementally. And those who are affected by it will be those who are already on the margins anyway. Uh, you know, perhaps an elderly person who was struggling already with their health and the decreased nutritional value of their uh, diet leads them to succumb to an illness that they might have otherwise overcome. Because education, already under threat from other causes, becomes compromised by the lack of nutrition that they're receiving in their diet. And so these are impacts that won't have climate change written in the headlines about them, and that won't, if people die from this, it won't, they won't have climate change written on their death certificate. But nonetheless, this is another one of those impacts that will, according to this study, affect hundreds of millions of people uh, within our lifetimes, worsening their lives. This is just another one of those, you know, it's, it's continuing to broaden the picture. Do you have anything to, any thoughts or reflections on this yeah, somewhat I do. depressing story? Yeah, it's actually a bit of a, a personal story. Mm -hmm. And one's a good news and one's a bad news. So maybe the bad news first. So personally, I'm a bit worried about this protein deficiency. Mm -hmm. So I've actually just lost 23 kilos on a keto diet. <laughs> and so protein's very important to the balance of that. So I'm wondering about what the impact is for me and my uh, new keto diet and lifestyle change. Uh, and then the zinc deficiency. So I've actually just spent the last two and a half years uh, uh, working for a vitamin and mineral supplement uh, company. So they might be quite happy about that because they have <laughs> zinc supplements that More people business. can take. That's this, right. this is one of those... Uh... <laughs> Uh, one of those rare winners, if you like. It's the supplement yeah. com companies that need to step in and yeah. rescue us um, yeah. at further expense. Yeah. But uh, I mean, you know, at the heart of this is still it's about real people's lives. Yeah. And, you know, that should drive us to action. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's uh, have another uh, pause and uh, let's go for another Brook random fact at this point. Excellent. We've, uh, again, been talking about some dark things. Give us a, a piece of trivia. Well, actually, Byron, this is my favourite uh, trivia question. Okay. Uh, and so the question is, what happens on a blue moon? Uh, well, uh, a blue moon is, I think, when there are two full moons within a calendar month, um, because the lunar cycle is a little bit shorter than the calendar cycle, and so some months you get two, that's a blue moon. Is that what you're getting at? Well, no, that is what a blue moon is, but it's not what happens uh, on a blue moon. What happens on a blue moon? I don't and know. And 98% of people answer the trivia question how you answered it, but it's not right. Oh, well, I'm glad I'm uh, par for the course at least <laughs> in right. my failure. <laughs> so Put me what, out of my misery. Yes. Yeah, so what actually happens on a blue moon 
is that a baby Smurf is born. <laughs> That's awesome. That's right. Okay. So this is this is how the Smurf colony increases. Exactly. That's oh, right. Good. Oh, good. So um, they they seem to uh, have a bit of a problem with their gender balance, though. So I'm I'm always was yeah, a bit well, concerned but, about yeah. just how their long term uh, viability of the the Smurf population. They they may need to get an endangered species listing. I think. Yes. Well, turning from the uh, some of these issues that we've been talking about can seem quite distant in some ways. Uh, for most of us, we're, we're not inside a prison. We're not on uh, Nauru. We're, we're not facing malnutrition in India. But turning from the food in distant places to the food on our own breakfast tables, our final story is uh, from the ABC. And the headline is Capilano, Australia's biggest honey producer and supermarkets accused of selling fake honey. Australia's biggest listed honey company and some of the country's largest supermarket chains face accusations of unwittingly selling fake honey. Testing at a leading international scientific lab that specialises in honey fraud detection has found that almost half the honey samples selected from supermarket shelves were adulterated, meaning it's been mixed with something other than nectar from bees. Now it goes on uh, the article into some of the details around this and why this hasn't been previously picked up, but why it is now being picked up with a new test, a test that unsurprisingly Capilano don't like, but which is uh, widely accepted around the world as an accurate way of testing whether or not you're getting genuine honey when you buy it from the supermarket. Now, this is quite personal for me. I'm an amateur beekeeper, an apiarist, uh, having both a honeybee hive and a hive of native stingless bees, And so this is an issue that I've been aware of for the last few years. I'm really glad to see it's getting a little bit more attention here. And basically it's got to do with, again, large companies trying to cut corners to make a bigger profit. And the way they do that is that rather than paying full price for Australian beekeepers to care for and receive the honey from uh, local bees, it's cheaper to import honey from overseas. Now, there's one major honey exporter that dominates the global market, particularly in this part of the world, and that's China. And interestingly, it's uh, been reported that for the last decade or two, China has been exporting roughly twice the amount of honey that they produce. Now, immediately, if you've got your uh, calculators at the ready, you can work out there's something a bit fishy happening there. Uh, That's not exporting twice as much as they consume domestically exporting twice as much as they produce. So there's something fishy happening. And so the thing is they're taking their honey and adulterating it, adding in uh, sugar water, basically, um, in more and more sophisticated forms to try to avoid some of these tests that get used to find it. But the the end result is that uh, when Australians go to the supermarket, there are really two kinds of honey that you'll be confronted with. Some of the jars will say 100% Australian honey, And some of them will say made in Australia from local and imported ingredients. And those latter jars are very likely to be considerably cheaper than the former. And there's a reason for it, as revealed in this story, that the the companies are trying to pull the wool over the eyes of consumers in order to improve their own profits. And they're uh, giving us uh, what doesn't really count as honey. Now, this might seem like a fairly trivial thing. And sure, the sugar water that gets passed off as honey can often taste fairly similar but there are there are bigger issues at stake here around our food systems around the health of our pollinators and uh, perhaps if we had a bit longer we might dive into some of those but for the sake of time I might uh, just draw that to a close just noting that um, uh, if you do want to buy 
honey, make sure you buy it from either a local beekeeper, I'll happily sell you some five ways honey, or if you're getting it from the supermarket, make sure it's it says 100% Australian honey. So we move uh, into our third segment, which is what do we do? We don't want to just be consumers of the news. We don't just want to be overwhelmed by some of the darkness that we've been exploring. We want to work out how do we actually be responsible citizens. Uh, For those of us who are Christians, how do we respond faithfully to the news? How can we be creative in what we do in response? How can we not just be listeners, but people who are actively engaged in the world? Um, And so we've got a few suggestions, and as usual, we're going to make some suggestions at a very immediate, uh, simple, practical level, and going through to some perhaps more challenging ones. And our first one is, we want to suggest this week that for three of the issues that we've uh, touched on, it might be worth signing up to a group called Common Grace. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Common Grace, Brooke? Yeah, so Common Grace is a growing movement of over 40,000 Australian Christians who are passionate about Jesus and justice. But for those non-Jesus lovers out there, there's much for you to uh, have a look at and join the calls as well. And just focusing on four key justice issues, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander justice, domestic and family violence justice, asylum seeker and refugee justice, and climate justice and creation care. And so, yeah, they're the key justice issues that drive our work and obviously what we've been talking about tonight. Yeah, and so if I can just pick on a couple of those. So for a start, in the last few weeks, uh, there's been launched a major campaign. Uh, Common Grace is a partner with uh, World Vision and with uh, Sydney Anglican Diocese and with a number of refugee action groups, uh, a few dozen groups actually all together, uh, with a campaign called Kids Off Nauru, um, seeking in the next few months before International Children's Day in, I think, November, seeking to get the remaining children still trapped in, in those abusive, inhumane and cruel conditions to get them off Nauru and to somewhere actually safe, whether that's Australia or elsewhere. Um, but that's, that's the campaign at the moment with a really concrete, practical, compassionate ask. And so you can either uh, go and sign up at Common Grace to join that movement or simply go to the website kidsoffnauru.org.au. And if people are interested in Common Grace, uh, so the website's www.commongrace.org.au and then also to follow us on Facebook at Common Grace AUS. Yeah, and so to briefly mention the other two um, points that we, we touched on there, uh, one is that Common Grace is, uh, along with many churches around Australia, heading into um, September as season of creation, a period of the year where many churches have a particular focus on thinking about what it means to be a creature amongst creatures in a world that is growing more hostile to all of us. So during this season of creation, Common Grace will be offering a series of reflections to help us go deeper into these ideas. And uh, Brooke was actually the author of the the first one of those. And so if you go and sign up to get those regular emails uh, for the season of creation, then you can go and check out her first reflection uh, there already. And then the third thing, do you want to talk about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander justice component of Common Grace and what's coming up for the team on that front? 
Yeah, so we look at things like Reconciliation Week and NAIDOC Week and are really about amplifying Aboriginal Christian voices in particular. But then why I'd love you to sign up this week is as our nation faces these injustices and time is getting more critical, we'll really be focusing on the next little while about calling people into action with us and helping to advocate on some things. So I guess just a little thought to leave people with is Uh, You know, tonight we've been having a conversation and more conversation needs to happen in Australia between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples, but non-Aboriginal peoples going out and talking to your own friends and family um, about some of the injustices Aboriginal people face. So my challenge for people this week and as a bit of a precursor and a taste to what's coming from the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Justice team of Common Grace is to go and learn one of the stories from the Guardian's uh, deaths inside and their uh, investigation into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Learn one of those stories and tell one of your friends this week, uh, retell that person's story. Mm, Yeah, the power of the specific name and Mm. and the details of an actual story. It's uh, very humanising and it can turn uh, what might seem like an abstract issue Mm. into something that is much... Uh, more readily grasped by our hearts and our minds. And so Common Grace, that movement of Australian Christians, is a a movement that doesn't accept a just world belief, but wants to be honest and truthful about the, the pain and the darkness in our world, but also about God's common grace, God's grace directed towards all of the creatures of, on this planet and, and towards all people, and the invitation that God gives us to join in God is good to all and we get to join in. That's the the privilege and the challenge of the idea of common grace. Our second thought on what do we do, uh, again, this will be a a semi-regular part, I think, of our third segment, is that uh, I'd like to do either a book or a film review. And so, Brooke, do you have a book that you want to recommend for us? Uh, I do indeed, and it's one that I've been promoting all around the country, and that is Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. And Bruce Pascoe is an Aboriginal man who's actually a historian. And uh, Dark Emu, I just think, is a foundational book for every Australian to read. And uh, Bangara Dance Company has just actually turned it into a dance production that I had the privilege of seeing the other night. And it was just absolutely amazing. And just to leave it as a bit of a, a taster, I wanted to share one of the quotes from Dark Emu. And when we think back to the beginning of our conversation, we talked about one of those myths, some of those myths and stereotypes that exist. And one of them is that Aboriginal people were nomadic hunters and gatherers. And that is false. And we've always known it as false, but it's proven as false. And so Bruce Pascoe uh, says... The start of the journey is to allow the knowledge that Aboriginal people did build houses, did cultivate and irrigate crops, did sew clothes and were not hapless wanderers across the soil, mere hunter-gatherers. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were intervening in the productivity of this country and what has been learnt during that process over many thousands of years will be useful to us today. To deny Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander agricultural and spiritual achievement is the single greatest impediment to intercultural understanding and perhaps to Australian moral well-being and economic prosperity. Wow. There's a lot in that quote. That's right. This is is a book that is a history book focusing on pre 
contact experience and practices uh, of the uh, hundreds of nations that make up the first peoples of this land. But it's obviously more than a history book too. Mm. It has uh, much to say about our contemporary situation um, mm. and what is needed at this moment, mm. what is the, the opportunity for us to move forward um, mm. by having a better picture of what is behind. That's right. And, you know, also <laughs> the thing that made me angry that the evidence existed. So the fact that our education system basically lied to Australia, the question of why weren't we told? And the evidence is all there and um, documented in the first Europeans' journals and so forth, and that's what Bruce Pascoe shares through Dark Emu with the rest of Australia. Mm. And then finally, you know, what, what, do we, what shall we do section? Something a little bit more ambitious, something that uh, might stretch us a bit and might be for uh, longer term, um, but, you know, that steps could be taken towards today. Do you have a suggestion about something productive that uh, people could include in their life here, Brooke? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I call people into is friendship with Aboriginal people. So actually to think about, do you have an Aboriginal friend? Do you know an Aboriginal person? The research, and I've tested out this research in seminars and classes that I've done, is that 90% of Australians do not know an Aboriginal person. And if we don't know each other, then how can we share each other's stories, share each other's lives. And, you know, one of those other myths, um, people think they've got to go to remote areas of Australia. The largest community of Aboriginal people in Australia is in Sydney and the second largest is in Brisbane. And if you combine the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations of Brisbane and Sydney, you nearly get a quarter of the overall all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia. So we're very um, much in the major capital cities, so it's easy to find us and easy to become friends with us. Yeah, that 90% stat is interesting in that if I reflect on my own life, I it's probably true to say that for 90% of my life, mm. um, I don't think I knew well any mm. Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people and to my loss mm. uh, and to my shame. And it's been a great privilege to be getting to know you over the mm. last few years and, and to call you friend now, along with a number of other Indigenous brothers and sisters And it's been a privilege and delight to have you on The Good Dirt this uh, week, this episode. Thank you so much for your contribution and your ongoing voice uh, to Australia and and in this moment and and some of the things that we really do need to hear. For those of you who are listening, thank you for making it through to the end. Um, We would love to hear your feedback, your criticisms or uh, anything you uh, like. Uh, We're obviously still early on in this journey and... uh, Very much looking forward to uh, having you join us in future as we continue to dig into the news and mix it together and uh, hopefully see it gradually turn into that lovely, dark, fresh soil that uh, can can see new shoots grow. As a final postscript, I wanted to thank Brooke Prentice once again for joining us. Though this episode was mainly recorded a few months ago, Brooke has a couple of recent announcements that those who enjoyed listening to her may be interested in. First, Brooke has been awarded a senior fellowship with Anglican Deaconess Ministries here in Sydney to pursue a project titled Resourcing the Australian Church to Engage, Build and Deepen Relationships with Aboriginal Peoples, Aboriginal Christian Leaders and Aboriginal Justice. You can read all the details on the ADM website, but it's an exciting project for all of 2019. I'll include the link in the episode description and on the Facebook page. This means that Brooke will be moving here to Sydney next year and she'll actually be living right here in Paddington, which is 
very exciting. Part of that move involves a second announcement, also very exciting, which is that Brooke will be taking up the role of Peace Talks Director. Peace Talks is a ministry of Paddington Anglican, where I'm assistant pastor, and it's a monthly gathering to explore politics, ethics, art, and culture. I'm sure I'll say more about Peace Talks in future episodes, but some listeners may be aware of the podcast called Peacecast, put together by David Taylor, the previous director of Peace Talks, and Joel Harrison, a constitutional law scholar. You can check it out on iTunes and SoundCloud. Highly recommended. The Good Dirt is produced by Simon Bunstead, sound by Lewis Best, music by Francis Preve, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform, and sign up for the Facebook page, The Good Dirt, to take these discussions further. I'm Byron Smith, and until next time, let's go and get our hands dirty.